Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, my lovely history friends. This is the 21st episode of the Franco-Dutch War. So if you haven't listened to the other episodes, you might want to do that now and that way you'll know what's going on. If you don't really care either way, if this is just a tester for yourself to see if you can truly withstand another history podcast in your life, especially one run by a guy called Zach Twomley, of all things. What kind of a name is that? Well, history friends, I didn't choose my name, but I did choose this podcast, and I chose this war to cover as well, because I thought it was so darn interesting. And hopefully, because you've listened to a few episodes already, you'll agree with this. The Franco-Dutch War is a really interesting tale, and we've been with it since the beginning. We're nearly at the end, we're nearly finished covering it, one of Louis's greatest hits or worst hits, depending on how you feel about it, and it'll lead us handily into the next phase of our podcast, which is the Long War, otherwise known as the War of the League of Augsburg, otherwise known as a series of events that are disconnected but make for very interesting reading and hopefully listening. Events such as the War of the Grand Alliance, the Last Siege of Vienna, all sorts of things. Jan Sobieski coming to the rescue of Western Christendom. All of that's ahead of us, guys, and I'd like to remind you that this podcast is taking a break over the summer months after we have our massive blowout birthday from the 18th of May onwards, which I'm still keeping a secret from you guys because we're nearly there and it's going to be amazing and you should all be really, really excited. But you guys should know that we're taking a break unless, of course, you are a patron of this podcast. You wondered how long it was going to take me to mention that this podcast is on Patreon. So go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up now. Become a diplomat for $5 a month. You guys can, well, get some real good stuff in return. You'll instantly get an extra episode because you'll be one week ahead of the normal feed, and you'll get an hour of extra content every month, which over the summer months means that you won't actually have to endure a break from my gorgeous voice because you'll still get an episode every single week. That means you'll get nine episodes over July and August, whereas everyone else will just have to have a break. I'm sure you're sick of me by now anyway. Either way, guys, whatever you decide to do, I'd just like to thank you sincerely for listening to this podcast. And, well, if this episode makes you think about figures or events that happened during this time period, as far as I'm concerned, I've done my duty to history. And now, let's do our duty to history once more. Try to ignore the birds in the background, I'm sorry about that, but I live in Ireland and sometimes there are lots of birds. At least there isn't any sheep in the background, that's something, isn't it? Okay, so let's jump in there. That didn't ruin the mood at all, as I take you to the latest episode of the Franco-Dutch War. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome to the show. Last time we brought our coverage to the end of 1676, we noted how Louis XIV managed to sustain his war effort by chipping away at the Spanish Netherlands while also defending along the Rhine. Although he would lose Philipsburg along the Rhine, he would find more success in Flanders, capturing further inroads in the Spanish Netherlands and apparently reinforcing the French Meuse barrier of fortresses along that river, while also finding time to repel a Dutch assault on Maastricht. The French numerical advantages were shown in their ability to project their power into Sicily as well, where an otherwise unremarkable campaign did see the loss of Admiral de Ruyter, as the war claimed yet another great victim. Concluding our coverage last time with a look at the British situation, we denoted the rise of the Earl of Danby and his plans to ingratiate his king towards Parliament in order to get the grants from that institution that he needed. Through such grants, Danby believed, Charles II would be freed from such a heavy reliance on Louis XIV's subsidies, which even though the full extent of them were not known, they were suspected by Charles's MPs. To distance his king from the French and side with the more popular Dutch, as 1677 looked to be another hard slog for the Allies, Danby sought a solution which would grant his administration some popular outcome, amidst a returning parliament that had been prorogued for 15 months and was probably eager to get down to things. Danby founded in the culmination of some feverish Anglo-Dutch diplomacy, instigated in the first instance by William of Orange. Another marriage of Orange to Stuart, it seemed, was on the cards once more. Let's see how it turned out as I take you to early 1677. The first ingredient in conversation is truth, the next good sense, the third good humour, and the fourth wit. Sir William Temple Sir William Temple mulled over the marriage proposal. It had the potential to change everything, to channel Parliament's anti-French, anti-Catholic and increasingly pro-Dutch sympathies into a tangible policy. It also had the potential to definitively prove a foil to Louis XIV, who would have been given pause for thought at the side of England and the Netherlands, uniting in marriage, with further possibilities to unite by political treaty. Yet on the other hand, The proposal was also hitting snags, complex and ugly knots in the British political system, which would take more powers than Temple possessed to untangle. He had been in The Hague in 1671 when Johann de Witt began to sense the true dangers of the Dutch position. He had insisted to de Witt then that Charles II would uphold the Triple Alliance and could not possibly go against the joint interests of the Protestant Netherlands, especially in the name of ensuring further victories for Catholic France. Temple had said these things to De Witt because he had believed them, and it was because he had believed them that he had been recalled to London before the end of 1671. At that time, Britain couldn't afford to have a pro-Dutch ambassador to The Hague at a time when it planned to fulfil the nightmare, which Temple refused to accept. 
Thus the pro-French proclivities had blocked the pro-Dutch sentiments of Temple, and he had been recalled. But in recent times, especially since the Treaty of Westminster had been signed in spring 1671, times had begun to change, and on top of this, Parliament was angling for an opportunity to intervene itself in foreign policy, and debate the new course, which it had been frequently unable to do in the past, owing to Charles's tendency to prorogue it whenever it displayed its anti-French sentiments too boldly. As Temple worked with Dutch agents, scenes within Parliament became more heated over the spring of 1677. The Duke of Buckingham, once so integral and vibrant a personality to the functioning of the British state, as well as a firm friend of Charles, had aged terribly. Antonia Fraser, in her biography of Charles II, provided a cutting and, in many ways, graphic description of his person by 1677 when she wrote, The Duke had lost his sense of personal magnificence, or he did not care. By 1677, not only was he wearing false teeth, but Nell Gwynne, who remained his friend, begged him at least to wear new shoes and a new periwig when he knocked at her door, so as not to stink the place out. Buckingham, no longer the peacock he had once been, was in fact more like a wasp, an angry wasp at that, determined not to recognise the end of his own personal summer. Like a wasp, he retained his sting, as the king and Danby would soon discover. Ridiculous as Buckingham may now have appeared, it was he who provided an essential foil to Charles and Danby. While Danby did desire to improve British relations with the Dutch and end Charles's reliance on Louis, he was also intently reliant on bribes to affect a sense of loyalty in the two Houses of Parliament, a fact which would come back to haunt him later. Furthermore, he was suspected of being an advocate of absolutism, an accusation which his financial manipulation of Parliament probably brought about. This was also the point in British history when the political lines were being drawn, to be set in stone in a decade's time in the great culmination which was the Glorious Revolution. At this point, we would have seen Danby's side as Tories and the likes of Buckingham, but particularly the eminently more capable Anthony Ashley Cooper that we mentioned in the last episode, otherwise known as the Earl of Shaftesbury, as the kind of leader of the other group, the Whigs. These were the last men standing from the cabal. In many ways, they were relics of the past. Subsequent events like the exclusion crisis would provide further fodder for both sides to distinguish themselves into their political camps, but at the moment Buckingham and Shaftesbury's weapons were mere opposition to whatever Danby put forward. This led to a heated scene as Shaftesbury, Buckingham and two other allies were placed in the Tower of London in an overreaction which would later be used against Danby's administration. Yet the issue of the Navy was again important enough to provoke a semblance of cooperation. In March of 1677, our man, who we haven't seen in a really long time and who I kind of missed to be honest, Samuel Pepys, gave a rousing speech and managed to glean 600 grand for the support of a navy, which was of course a brilliant result, and Danby convinced himself that the danger to his regime had passed. Perhaps now Danby was encouraged by his success in gaining money for the king, so he went to Charles to talk to him about a get-rich-quick scheme. If Charles would start advertising Blue Apron on his podcast... Aha, gotcha, so you are paying attention. Great. No, what Danby actually did was ask his king to declare war on France in early April 1677. If Charles did this, then Parliament would be forced to vote him the monies and materials he needed 
for the defense of the realm. Even more incredibly than that forced advertisement, Danby argued that once Charles possessed this army and navy, he would be able to put some distance between himself and his unruly parliament, a suggestion which lent further credence to the accusation that Danby respected that institution even less than his master. Charles would of course refuse, just like I refused to put any ads like Blue Apron on this podcast, favouring his relationship with his cousin more than he favoured a get-rich-quick scheme that probably would have been looked upon with a sense of suspicion. Of course, it should be said that Danby was only asking Charles to do what he had done before. Had Charles not asked for monies in 1670 for the sake of the Triple Alliance and the reinforcement of the British Navy within that agreement, only to turn those monies towards the fulfilment of the Anglo-French Treaty of Dover? In Danby's mind, perhaps, it was a case of in for a penny, in for a pound, but as short as Charles was on both pennies and pounds, he had not been brought to the point where making such a definite turn in policy seemed necessary. As before, Charles hoped to straddle the fence between an agreement with the Dutch and friendship with France. Yet at the same time, perhaps, a declaration of war against France would have gone some lengths towards resuscitating Charles's regime, which by late spring 1677 seemed to be spluttering into yet another period of political stalemate. With Louis on his back to prorogue Parliament again if it became too anti-French, and Parliament so anti-French and appalled by recent French successes that it advocated war against the French in the name of the stricken Dutch, it was becoming harder and harder to find a third way. Thus, for the sake of Charles' sanity, he had come to feel the genuine need for a peace treaty between the Franco-Dutch parties, which would at least free London from having to make such difficult and pressurised decisions. A peacetime change in policy could at least be made under less scrutiny and pressure, which was beginning to wear on Charles's patience and health. So Charles would not enter into any war without money, and Parliament would not vote any money without a war. The stalemate continued into late May of 1677, when it was proposed by a parliamentary group on the 23rd of May that Britain sign an offensive and defensive alliance with the Netherlands in order to offset the recent French successes. Such a proposition was in fact far beyond the proclivities or prerogative of that institution in Parliament, and a wounded Charles had to tell them so. It was one thing for agitation and rumour to suggest that the inclinations of Parliament had swung in a given direction, but it was quite another for that same Parliament to formulate such rumours and agitations into a coherent policy, and then to send that ship into the public sphere, where it would sail into the inbox of every foreign court in Europe. Suddenly, Charles's circle were somewhat hilariously bombarded with messages of support, which he did not want, from Leopold, while the Elector of Brandenburg tried to orchestrate British intervention against Sweden, and even the Danes got involved because they thought that Britain was suddenly overtly anti-French. None of these options appealed on any level to Charles, and he told Danby so, who himself had been both excited at the fact that his favourite policy was also favoured by many MPs, but also apprehensive since he anticipated, predictably enough, how his sovereign would act. Charles was restrained but still adamant that Parliament would not take control of foreign policy away from him. As a penalty of their getting ahead of themselves, in late May 1677 he waved his proroguing stick against Parliament, with the result that Parliament was prorogued until the middle of July of that year. The political runaround continued. Let's park Charles's problems for a minute then, while we deal with the question of what had Parliament so spooked exactly. 
You'll remember they alluded to the French victories on land in spring of 1677. So let's see what made them so significant, and why 1677 could be seen as the most successful year of the entire war for France. Once again, the Spanish Netherlands took centre stage as the war descended into one of smash and grab for Louis' forces. He placed a small force in capable hands along the Rhine and similarly along the Pyrenees, and he focused all of his attentions along the French border with Flanders. Readying his forces early in the year, Louis had the striking ambition to seal the deal initiated in the previous year with his capture of Bouchon and Condé along the River Scheldt by seizing Valenciennes and Cambrai. In the case of Spanish Artois, a province of the Spanish Netherlands which straddled the French border, only Saint-Omer remained as a defensible fortress in Spanish hands, and Louis aimed to take this as well, securing that strategically important chunk of land for Vauban's fence of iron, though this went further than Vauban would have liked. The seizure of these settlements would have added further layers to the French defensive line, and in the case of the Scheldt, it would have added an additional river of fortresses which would have to be forded in the future if an enemy wished to attack France. To Louis and indeed Vauban to an extent, this was sound strategy, but to William of Orange it of course had to be opposed at all costs. Thus, on the 5th of March 1677, Valenciennes was invested by the French amidst a campaign of far too much secrecy for Vauban's liking. While fooling the enemy was always important, as Sun Tzu would tell you, to Vauban it was obvious where the French intended to attack next, and the failure to announce the move within French high command meant that Vauban couldn't mobilise his officers as effectively as he would have liked. He wrote an uncharacteristically brazen letter to Louvois, saying, It is a rather curious thing to see that everyone knows what you intend to do, and that it is only to me that any secret is made of it. Apparently I am to play an insignificant part in it, and my opinion is to count for nothing. Valenciennes was badly provisioned and not very well reinforced, and in the face of the stout challenge put forward by the French, the whole place surrendered on the 17th of March. With Cambrai now cut off and surrounded by French fortresses to the south and north of its position, the seemingly disadvantaged settlement looks set to become an easy grab. Louis himself joined the army in pursuit of another predictable piece of glory. The town of Cambrai didn't have updated Italian-style fortifications. It contained high walls and towers of the medieval style, and the trenches were opened on the 22nd of March, given up on the 5th of April, and the garrison then withdrew to the citadel within of Cambrai. For the next month, the strange battle for the citadel of Cambrai endured. You might be wondering, as I was as well, why a garrison would bother to withdraw into a citadel at all. Considering the state of Cambrai, after all, would it not make sense to give up the ghost altogether, as Valenciennes had done? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The answer had much to do with the Spanish quest to glean some defiant glory in defeat. The defeat was certain, there could be no doubt about that, as was any defeat of a besieged town which had endured a long enough siege. Yet at the same time it wouldn't have been acceptable to give up the ghost with the minimal effort which the garrison had already expended in the fortnight it took to take the actual town of Cambrai. Believing their citadel offered better protection, as it was a more modern structure, the Spanish withdrew here and they awaited another opportunity to bolster their reputation in the face of certain defeat. Indeed, their opportunity came, as did Vauban's opportunity to say, I told you so, when a reckless charge at the defences of the citadel in Cambrai were approved too early by Louis, who was also on site. This charge caused the needless death of 440 men, and, as if to drive home the lesson, in the words of James Faulkner in his study of Vauban, Vauban then put in a far more measured and noticeably less flamboyant attack with proper artillery support. The big guns then began their remorseless work, as did the teams of miners, and once two breaches were made in the adjoining bastion, the governor capitulated on the 17th of April 1677. The garrison had put up a good defence during the 29 days of the siege. They were granted the honours of war, marching out with colours flying and drums beating bravely two days later. Louis XIV asked that the Spanish governor be introduced to him so that he could congratulate him on his own brave conduct and on the valour of his troops. Thus, the apparently fruitless exercise by the Spanish of withdrawing further into their garrison did produce fruit after all. Unlike the garrison of the more impressive Valenciennes, the Cambrai position... The Cambrai garrison defended their honour well and proved their mettle, even being granted an audience with the king. In some circumstances, if the garrison in question sufficiently impressed Louis and were of foreign stock, for example, the Irish commander of Maastricht when the French captured it all the way back in summer 1673, Louis could be persuaded to offer said commander a commission in the French army. In the world of mercenary service, though the late 17th century saw a large upturn in state-commissioned troops, such a practice of switching sides would not have been out of the ordinary but in any case no such commission would have been offered to the distinguished Spanish governor in the case of Cambrai, whose nationality would normally have prevented his defection. Unlike his great contemporaries who had died in their line of work, the 45-year-old Vauban was now appointed Inspector General of Fortifications, a post which carried with it all the responsibility to care for the construction, design and upkeep of all the fortified places of France. It was quite a task, and if Vauban was overwhelmed, he of course accepted the promotion nonetheless, because the king had desired it, and that was that. Even as Vauban worked away along the Scheldt, French forces continued their seizure of Saint-Omer in Spanish Artois, which had already begun in February. 
in an effort to forestall this settlement from coming under the French control, thus completing their hold on Artois, William made a Herculean effort to raise 30,000 Dutch and German soldiers to be led against Philippe, Louis's brother, who proved a formidable match in the event for the Prince of Orange. Aided by another formidable Marshal, Luxembourg, the battle turned when the French side broke the Dutch left, and when the Dutch right simultaneously failed to break the French left. Some accounts put William's losses as high as 10,000, a shocking number in the circumstances of the time, which generally stipulated that such battles were not all that decisive. This loss in the Battle of Cassel on the 11th of April 1677 was one which the Dutch could least afford, and it proved an absolute boon to the prestige of French armed forces. Unfortunately for William and the Dutch strategic position, he just could not seem to shift the French presence from the border with the Spanish Netherlands. Urging the Emperor to pledge more troops in the region and for Madrid to kind of cop on to itself, William accepted that the campaign had been lost for the moment and he withdrew behind his defensive lines. Cassel was only saved from shattering William's entire army due to the fact that the French pillaged the Dutch baggage train rather than actually press home their advantage. A demonstration, perhaps, that the urge for plunder was overcoming their necessary discipline. Regardless, the French had undeniably won the day, and Cassel is thus significant because it is an example of a battle amongst what was mostly a siege campaign. In fact, the Franco-Dutch War is arguably a siege war. Not only that, but unlike earlier encounters such as Senef against Condé in years past, this time a Dutch defeat had genuine consequences. Louis was able to roll up most of the remaining fortresses in the Spanish Netherlands virtually unopposed, and he returned home to France to a triumph, befitting a son king. Large swathes of the Spanish Netherlands were now in his hands, and the French border was thus vastly more secure. It is this strategic situation that greeted the English as they viewed the spectacle of Louis XIV's France facing down the Dutch for yet more overbearing campaigns as 1677 wore on. If Louis XIV didn't seem like the universal monarch before, he certainly did now. Before we jump back to Britain, though, it's worth detailing another diary entry from Lizalot, who, if you'll remember, was Louis XIV's sister-in-law. One particularly revealing incident was recalled by her in a letter to Duchess Sophie of Hanover in mid-December 1676, whereupon the unfortunate Liz managed to fall from her horse. I know it seems like a somewhat random insertion at this point in the episode, guys, but I really feel like it adds a level of humanity to Louis, which we otherwise wouldn't have received if not for these primary source accounts. So I hope you'll agree, for the sake of building a picture of Louis the Man, that it is a story worth telling. Lizalot wrote that immediately after her accident, Your Grace, who so much admired our King for being such a comfort to me in the throes of my labour, will also love him for what he did in this instance, for he was the first to reach me, looking white as a sheet, and although I assured him that I had not hurt myself or fallen on my head, he would not rest until he had personally examined my head on all sides, and finally decided that I had told him the truth. He also led me back to my room and even stayed with me for a while to see whether I might become dizzy. Lizalot continued writing to Sophie, bringing out interesting revelations about French court life in the late 17th century, and how one's position within it could depend on the king's disposition towards you. She wrote, I must say that even now the king still shows me his favour every day, for... He speaks to me whenever he sees me, and now calls me for every Saturday to have a nightly feast with him and Madame de Montspan. 
This is also the reason that I am now very much a la mode. Whatever I say or do, whether it be good or awry, it is greatly admired by the courtiers, to the point that when I decided to wear my old sable in this cold weather to keep my neck warm, everyone had one made from the same pattern, and sables have become quite the rage. This made me laugh, for five years ago the very people who now admire and wear this fashion so laughed at me and made so much fun of me with my sable that I could no longer wear it. This is what happens at this court. If the courtiers imagine that someone is in favour, it does not matter what that person does. One can be certain that the courtiers will approve of it. But if they imagine the contrary, they will think that person ridiculous, even if it has come straight from heaven. Oh, how I wish it were possible for your grace to spend a few months here to observe this life. I am certain that your grace would have many a good laugh. Indeed, from such anecdotes, you can hopefully see why I have been so looking forward to unleashing Lizalot's intensely honest and revealing letters to you guys. As a resource in the 17th century, they're invaluable for shedding much needed light on the ins and outs of court life, something which is normally obscured from view by the main event, such as Louis' campaigns or the tales of individual battles and sieges. Unfortunately, we don't have a Lizalot in London, and thus our coverage of the British political system would be less personal or filled with anecdotes because of this, but we'll do our best in any case. As we go back to London, we have to look at the person of Anthony Ashley Cooper, the Earl of Shaftesbury, who by this stage was still in the Tower of London by July 1677. With him there, it seemed as though the opposition to Charles's moves would be quashed. Yet, the Duke of Buckingham, in spite of his waning appearance and apparently bad smell, was allowed out that same month, and even with his firmest critics in prison, neither Danby nor Charles managed to wrest from Parliament the monies they needed by the time all had assembled again in the middle of July. At the same time, Charles did support Danby's moves to bring about the Dutch marriage. Charles perhaps recognised that treading this halfway course would appease Parliament, who long accused him of an overtly pro-French policy. If Charles was still for Louis in his heart, he was at least willing to fully support Danby, even while he did accept further subsidies from Louis. Vintage Charles. This time, when Charles accepted the monies, he agreed to hold Parliament off until May 1678, a fact which has led several historians of the period to present Charles as a mere pawn of the French king. This view isn't without a firm basis, but it has to be said that Charles wasn't willing to wholly support the French. If he had been, he would never have agreed to the marriage of his Dutch nephew and English niece. Antonia Fraser effectively depicted Charles as such. It was as though the king were astride a giant seesaw, with William and Danby on one side, Louis XIV on the other, and Parliament determined to upset the whole structure. Rather than let that happen, Charles determined to shift his weight dexterously, now to one side, now to the other, rather than lose his balance. We have learned in the past of the importance of not counting Charles out, although on paper he appears a mere French puppet, we would more than have cause over the following year to wonder what had happened to the strings. Yet at the same time, if it appeared as though Charles could be accused of having grown a backbone with which he could use to stand up to the French, he never became anti-French enough to appease the opposite camp in Britain. From this fact we can deduce that Charles's greatest flaw was that he never came down hard enough on one side to please the other side sufficiently. To the French he was indecisive, and to Parliament he was a liar. In a sense, then, Charles's decision to approve the Dutch marriage, arguably one of his most significant acts in his reign, considering where this whole process eventually led us, 
appears on the surface to be an uncharacteristically definite act of a normally more cryptic king. There could be no denying that the marriage would have massive implications, or that it was bound to lead to future Anglo-Dutch cooperation in time, as had, after all, previous Stuart Orange marriages. Much of the credit must go to Danby for pressing the match so eagerly, as well as his appointment of William Temple to get the job done. Danby pressed the issue with such firmness that Charles's initial resistance gave away to actually seeing how he could make use out of the marriage with Parliament. Rather than see the event as an example of his own powerlessness, Charles could instead use this very powerlessness as an example of his position in the realm. In other words, he could present it to Louis as a constitutional issue in which he had been given little choice, while to Parliament he could present it as a noble act in which he had deftly ensured that the future lifeblood of the Stuart dynasty had been placed in safe, Protestant hands. Not only that, but with the growing consternation of Parliament towards his brother James's religious persuasions and the increasingly nervous tone with which the populace greeted any suggestion that a boy may be born to James and his second wife Mary of Medina, this marriage was a handy means of pacifying these same people, who may have seen the possibility of a Protestant succession after all, with the news of the marriage. That James himself agreed to it had much to do with the fact that Mary was pregnant with the boy that all good Protestant statesmen feared by this point. Perhaps he didn't feel threatened by the move because he believed that his succession and that of his Catholic Stuart line was not in doubt. Indeed, the birth of the Duke of Cambridge was greeted coldly, even if by December 1677, this unfortunate boy died. James, in the event, would have to wait a decade before a similar birth roused the indignation and fear of the realm again. But by the time that happened, the consequences for the House of Stuart would be far more severe. William of Orange was viewed as the warrior prince in Britain, and news of the match with Mary, James's daughter, in his first marriage, caused great jubilation. Suddenly, the previously unpopular and unimpressive Mary, who was the granddaughter of the Earl of Clarendon, don't forget, became the favourite beau of the realm. Edmund Waller, the court poet, described the marriage in verse, being sure to talk up William's military exploits, even while he presented him as helpless to the charms of a beautiful Stuart princess, writing as he did that, Nor all the force he leads by land could guard him from her conquering eyes. As it happened, Mary was the most unhappy of all with this whole arrangement, an interesting caveat when we consider that it was arguably the most successful match of its kind. William and Mary would become the quintessential power couple of Britain, but first the old prejudices and rumours of the era would have to be overcome. The 15-year-old Mary was horrified at the thought of being pledged to the short, cold and reportedly effeminate soldier king, William. Not only that, but she dreaded having to endure life outside of her homeland in the dreary and alien confines of the Netherlands. In her future, she foresaw misery and loneliness, but in time, she would become the most duchified of all the Stuart brides, embracing her new homeland as no previous wife did. On top of this, her own considerable wiles and abilities were brought out while alongside William. The two complemented one another, and before long she became his dutiful and devoted wife. The union of William and Mary got off to a rocky start, but however Mary felt about her husband to be, she prepared herself emotionally for the marriage, due in November of 1677. Unaware, perhaps, just how deeply the marriage would define her or the realm that she was about to leave. 
Next time, we'll examine the political and diplomatic circumstances behind the scenes which brought about this union, as well as the early manoeuvres which hinted at not merely an Anglo-Dutch marriage, but also an alliance. Okay guys, so this episode is finished, but unfortunately, if you are awaiting your chance to be called out on this podcast as a patron... I'm afraid you're going to have to wait a little while. You see, at the very moment that this podcast is being put out, I'm not really in a position to do anything, because let's just say I'm busy. Okay, okay, okay. I'll fess up, I'll be honest. I'm on my stag at this very moment. That's right, I'm on my stag. And where am I on my stag? I'm in Amsterdam. I'm examining some canals. Yep, that's true. So I'm honestly in a position this week to record the patrons. However, you should know that on the 18th of May... I will be in a position to record the patrons because the 18th of May is the date that the fifth year birthday project starts for the podcast and basically the introduction for that project is released on that date. What this means for you guys is that on the 18th of May 2017, I will be announcing all the patrons for this podcast that I didn't get a chance to announce from basically the 1st of May onwards. So yeah, there's about four episodes in which I won't actually get to record patrons, but I waited up in my head and I figured you guys would rather have an episodic schedule than a, well, chance to hear who was or who wasn't a patron, so I went with that. It was one or the other because I really wasn't in a position after coming back from Amsterdam to do all this. At the moment this podcast is released, I'm on a very early flight home, so yeah, not really in a position to do it. But anyway, thanks for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. If you want to send me a message to make sure I'm still alive, that'll be great. I'm sure I'm fine. I was very sensible, I promise. Not just saying that, just in case Anna hears. I really was very sensible, and I can't wait to get back into everything. Also, when I come back, it means there's only a week left till the wedding. So that's another thing to have to worry about. But as you may or may not be aware, this podcast will not be on hiatus while the wedding is on. I've sorted it out, I've organised it so that there will be a continuous episodic schedule until the Franco-Dutch War is finished with. So yes, how great am I? Pretty darn great. How great are you guys? Even greater. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.